The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I am Frank Allen in for the judge, Scott Wapner. No pivot and no pause. The Fed plans to keep tightening and sees a higher peak rate. How much of this hawkish talk is already priced into this market? And the big question, I think we've asked it before, is a year-end rally, is that even still possible? We're going to debate that and much more with our investment committee today. That includes Kerry Firestone, Josh Brown, and joining me right here on set is Jim Labenthal. But before we begin, let's get a check on the markets this hour. Stocks adding to yesterday's post-Fed loss are seeing some red across the board here, but we are off the session lows. The S&P and the Dow were down more than 1% earlier. The Nasdaq was down almost 2%. Right now, as we can see, the Dow down about uh, just about 100 points right now and three-quarters of a percent. Uh, the S&P at a two-week low, the Nasdaq at a three-week low. We're always watching that 10-year yield on the rise right now, uh, currently coming in at just about 4.17%. We've got to remember the weekly low, the low this week was 3.96%, so obviously an elevated situation when it comes to the 10-year. The two-year two also hitting a multi-year high, and that's where we really begin this conversation. Jim, thank you for being here. We're going to begin with you right now. The big question right now, how does what the Fed had to say, especially what Jerome Powell had to say, saying that we could see rates go even higher, how does that impact your portfolio? How are you adjusting? Yeah, okay. Well, I, I think there's two things that I want to say in response to that. One is, it's pretty simple. Yesterday, what he said is he's going higher than the market thinks. Okay, so the market has to adjust to that, which is what it did yesterday, what it's doing today. But I think the key thing here is how much higher than what the market expects is he going? Uh, the market expected somewhere around 4.60% on the peak Fed funds rate. Now it's looking more like 5%. So, you know, another 50-ish basis points. That's something that this market can adjust to relatively rapidly. That's not that big of an increase. Uh, and I think that it, we, we may be done with it today uh, as far as the downturn, the adjustment in the markets. The second thing, which I think is a little bit, excuse me, a little bit more nuanced, and I actually have to compliment the, uh, the, the chair on this, is he's kind of having his cake and eating it too. He says he's going higher in the peak than what the market says. Okay, so he's being more aggressive, you know, pounding his chest. Uh, you, know, <laughs> you know, big, uh, big gorilla here is going to raise rates. Got it. Good. Um, not letting up on inflation. But when he said he's slowing down, or he didn't say this, right? I I'm inferring a inferring, little bit. He said, he said there may be a time, which is kind of a wink and a nod, that they're going to slow down the rate of these rate hikes. I think what he's doing, I said this yesterday, I think he realizes that the CPI is not accurately capturing what's going on in inflation. It's lagging. We see a lot of things coming down, whether it's used cars, whether it's freight costs, whether it's actually rents. And the CPI just is lagging. He knows that, but he has tied himself, tethered himself and the Fed to the CPI. By going a little slower, it gives him some wiggle room here to wait and see if the CPI catches up. Now, I know I'm doing a lot of inference there. Yeah. I could be wrong, but that's what I believe. That's what you have me here for, Frank. That's so 
Farmer Jim, that, that is why we have you here. Carrie, I'm going to come over to you. I know you're already looking at your portfolio in light of uh, Jerome Powell's comments. I'm just going to read them for our audience just to, to clarify. He says, uh, incoming data since our last meeting suggests that the ultimate level of interest rates will be higher than previously expected. Carrie, how are you adjusting? Well, one of the comments that he's made consistently is that, you know, we're not over yet. We're on it. We're not giving up. Don't I mean, not these these exact words, but you get the impression that he both wants his audience to understand that they are driven by one mission to bring inflation down and they don't really care about anything else. So one thing that they obviously are not concerned about is a recession and it might be a recession that uh, affects uh, a lot of different kinds of companies. For us, we have a combination of stocks that are better in environments where there's, you know, faster growth and economies are booming, and those stocks that are better in defensive, uh, for defensive positioning. And I think that if you're a labor-intensive company and you're multinational and you have pressure of wages all around the world, that's a time to be careful. I mean, as investors, we're looking carefully at our portfolio and where the margins are and where the leverage points are because, you know, labor intensity is something that, you know, you can't control easily. And even though companies are saying they're holding back on hiring or perhaps letting go, we just heard Lyft is laying off a lot of people. You know, when wages are going higher and the market doesn't seem to be able to control for that, the job market remains very tough. And that's been true through COVID, COVID and perhaps because of COVID. But that's that's an area that we feel requires, I think, more attention. And where I think uh, in the process of going through our portfolio and thinking about that, you know, company by company. So, Kara, I mean, you're saying you're going company by company, but let's talk a little bit more broadly, sector by sector. There's some sectors that you're feeling like you might want to bail out. Um, not only are we getting this from the Fed that they're planning to raise the ultimate level of rates higher than expected, but the dollar seems to be back on the move as well, up 2% this week, up about a percent and a half today. Yeah, exactly. So, well, I, I wouldn't say we're bailing out of any sectors. You know, we're not wildly overweight uh, any names are definitely underweight consumer staples, which we think are expensive in energy where, you know, I think the commodity price, you know, can move any which way. And right now we're not willing to make a bet. But I, I, I do take your point that for multinationals, because the dollar strength and the dollar strength isn't isn't going away. I mean, other other countries are raising rates like UK did today. That doesn't mean the U.S. isn't. We did and, and we will again. Uh, and, and we heard that. So it's the, the fact that we're more likely to enter a recession, unlikely to have a soft landing, definitely going to see contraction in profit margins. The fourth quarter isn't going to be great. We heard that across the board from many companies, particularly in technology, communications, um, but, you know, other names. And so perhaps healthcare is the place to look. Um, maybe financials, certain types of financials could could see a um, you know, a, a push because of interest rates. But yeah, it's not easy. This is a minefield out there. And going in too early because you think the stock's down is, is meaningless. The stock can go down further. Yeah, for everybody at home, by the way, uh, Josh Brown is expected to come. I think he's having some technical difficulties. I know his absence is conspicuous, a silence at least, I'm not hearing him chime in. Before we get <laughs> to our halftime headliner, Jim, uh, I want to ask you, what's your take on energy? Best performing sector today. We're seeing a stock like ConocoPhillips, 52-week high, um, and expectations of higher energy prices, especially with the diesel shortage here in the United States. Yeah, uh, first off, I miss Josh. Where is he? But I'm happy to be on with you and Carrie. <laughs> um, look, energy is something that I believe in quite strongly right now. 
I've got twice the uh, market weight uh, in the portfolio that I run in energy. Um, frankly, this supply-demand imbalance is just going to go on for quite some time. We've been papering it over with releases from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve that simply can't continue for very long and are not going to continue for very long. And we've had a temporary decline in demand from China COVID shutdowns that I don't know how long they're going to last, but I don't think they're going to last forever. The bottom line is there's demand for more barrels of oil uh, and BTUs of natural gas than is currently being supplied uh, in the globe. So uh, something's got to give. You've got to have supply coming up. And for those people who are saying, well, you know, maybe the war in Ukraine, maybe something will be negotiated, Russian barrels will come on uh, back on the markets. Not so fast. That's not so easily done. It's easily said, not so easily done. Once production is shut in, it's hard to get it going back again. So I see this not as a trade, but as something for the next year or two. We're going to make some money, all of us, uh, in the energy sector. All right. Kerry mentioned energy. I wanted to get your take, Jim. But right now, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the show. Downtown Josh Brown. Technical difficulties have been resolved. Josh, always great to see you. I like the look you got going on here today. Um, more importantly, how do you think the markets look? And after what Jay Powell said, the ultimate level potentially higher. What's your view on what's going to be happening for the rest of this year and also what we're going to see in December? Uh, that's, that's, a, that's a lot of questions. How lot, much time we do missed I have? You. Hey, uh, we, we spent a lot of time on this show over, over the last few years debating w- one specific topic which was whether or not the rest of the market would be okay if the gigantic NASDAQ uh, tech stocks didn't hold up or, or sold off. And we now have an answer to that question. And the answer is yes. Um, when you look at the market cap losses for Amazon, uh, for Microsoft, for Meta, the, these numbers are absolutely gigantic. And yet, if you have a portfolio of stocks that's not just Fang, not just Nasdaq, gigantic company, um, there there really are a lot of constructive charts, a lot of sectors and sub-industry groups that look absolutely fine. And so I think we could put that question to bed. For me, the story of 2022, at least so far, and we're most of the way through, is the resilience of the stock market in the face of 400 basis points uh, worth of worth of tightening, um, and and a lot of really really rough geopolitical news. And I think you have to stand back and you have to say, look, if the S and P goes out where it is for the year, we'll look back on this and say it was a pretty lousy year, both for stock investors and for bond investors. However, the wheels did not come off, and there were a lot of places that you could be and do okay. And so one of the big themes I think going into the end of the year. Um, is that you really want to stick with what's worked. I I just don't see any kind of huge reversal in some of the hardest-hit areas. I think we'll have some tax law selling in November and in a lot of December, and maybe some of these names can bounce. But but, um, but the story, I think, continues the way it has been. Do you think we can see a year-end rally? That was one of the big questions that we're really launching this show with today after what we're hearing from Powell. Is there a potential? Is is a door open for a year-end rally? Well, you're not going to see tax law selling for, for uh, the mutual funds because they're done. So that'll be a retail phenomenon. I don't think it will be uh, enough to derail the potential for uh, a year-end rally. Because why are markets down so much? Because people have already sold. Like, let's not act like stocks go down and then people sell. Stocks go down because people are selling. <laughs> so I don't, I, I don't, I don't like that, that uh, 
it's a little bit of an Aruberos uh, argument, the snake eating its own tail. I would not use that as an excuse to sit this out. Um, seasonal, seasonal patterns are on your side. Uh, the election cycle, this is the sweet spot right here. I think a lot of that stuff is really big and can overwhelm okay. um, the desire of, you know, 10 million people to take some tax laws harvesting and a portion of their portfolio. But is That's it all not going to be Josh? the thing that derails us. Is it all priced is in? what all priced in? Just everything you're mentioning, all these different what's, factors. What's all? Uh, higher levels from the know. Fed, stronger we'll dollar, weaker yeah. earnings. I mean, I can, I can keep going. All right, listen. Powell said something yesterday that I thought was really interesting. He said it during the press or not during the statement. He was talking about how uh, in the past there was a phenomenon where the Fed would tighten and then you would get financial conditions tightening and then there would be an impact on the economy that, that stemmed from that. And right. obviously there's some lag in there. What's different now is that the market tightens front-running what the Fed's going to do the Fed does it, and the market had already gotten there, and then the Fed talks, and maybe the market has to go the next step. Um, but we're having, like, we're having this really interesting thing where the two-year is leading the way, the Fed is chasing it, it's a market expectation thing, but I think right now we're in a place where we've just digested 75 basis points after 75 basis points after 75 basis points. I think that's done. I think that's done. Okay. So I understand we could be at five, uh, you know, a 5.5% 10 year. I get it. It's, it's possible. Um, but I think what the Fed really wants to do is not have all that tightening and then throw it out the window by being overly dovish. And uh, I think mission accomplished yesterday. So look, the market's not that bad right now. We're still digesting a very big rally over the last couple of weeks. And apart from those fang names, really, it's not that bad. Josh, making up for lost time. You know, while me and the audience Google Aruberus, I don't even know what that means, though. I'm going to try to figure like that a, one out. That was like a police song, Josh. That was like <laughs> Sting. I mean, well, we're all was, Googling, that Josh. Was, that was high level, my friend. Yeah, that was. Seriously. I'm going to bring in our, our halftime I go, I go deep tracks on, uh, on the police. <laughs> I see. Spe speaking of high level, we're bringing our, our halftime headliner, Seth Carpenter. He's the chief global economist at Morgan Stanley. No one better to bring in on a day like this. Seth, great to see you. Great to see you too, Frank. Thanks for having me. So I think it's fair to say you're a Fed insider, spent 15 years at the Fed. Just give us your quick take on what you heard from Jerome Powell yesterday and how you see it impacting the broader markets. Yeah, so lots of things. There was an attempt to try to re reinforce a message he'd given before, which is we want to raise rates as much as necessary to bring inflation down. The more subtle part of the message uh, was but it's gonna take some time for us to get there and we're willing to sort of be a little patient. So he said, yep, the peak rate could be higher than what they thought in September. Uh, but he also said they're gonna be recalibrating how big those rate hikes uh, are gonna be. And I, I think the, uh, the other guests sort of detailed that really well. For me, the other interesting part uh, was in their statement. They said that uh, they wanna tighten policy to be restrictive so that inflation gets back to target. But then they said, over time, and I think it's, it's, it's fair to ask, what does over time mean? And the last time they did their own projections, over time meant at least three years for inflation to get back to their target. And so I think they are trying to be clear. They're serious about tightening. They're serious about bringing inflation down. But I also think they're trying to be clear. They're not trying to crash things so that everything comes down next year. They want to squeeze things enough so that we get the slowdown but then they're willing to let that slowdown happen over a long period of time. 
Yeah, it sounds like you're doing a little bit of inference yourself, Seth. we got a lot of inference going on today. Um, as you mentioned, the Fed says its main goal is reduce inflation to its target of 2%. Last time we checked, it's at 8.2%. So what do you think that means for December? You have obviously, you've seen these tea leaves many times before. Are we seeing 50 basis points in December or 75? I think, I think you have to keep that debate alive. Our baseline view is 50, uh, but that baseline view is very much predicated on the data we get tomorrow. So we get non-farm payrolls tomorrow. Uh, we're looking for about 180, so to step down below 200,000, so to continue that downward trend in non-farm payrolls that we've seen all year long. Uh, and then we'll get another one before December. We'll get um, the November report at the beginning of December. If that's another step down, which is what is our forecast, then yeah, I think we get 50 basis points because that will tell them we are seeing some slowing. Those lags that he talked about for monetary policy, uh, they're starting to show through so they don't have to be in quite the same hurry. And there's not a lot that a whole series of 50s can accomplish that, that you couldn't do if you had to with 75 in December. So I think they are starting to think about changing things up. Uh, Seth, it's Jim Laventhal. Uh, obviously, inflation is ground zero of this whole discussion. And this Fed has uh, tethered itself to the CPI. You know, it's changed from the PCE to the CPI uh, being the metric that it's looking at. Um, there's a lot of evidence that the CPI is um, at best lagging, uh, perhaps even mismeasuring inflation. Um, number one, do you agree? And, you know, what I'm referring to is we see used car prices. We see rents actually coming down in the marketplace, but obviously owner equivalent rent has not yet. Um, so my question to you is twofold. Do you see that disparity between the CPI and what's actually happening? And number two, if you do, what do you think the Fed is thinking about this? What, what, does that matter? Does that weigh into the Fed's calculus? You bring up you bring up a critical point here, and I think it, it fits into the shift in discussion for them to, to focus on the lags. I guess I'm less convinced that there's a lot of mismeasurement per se, but the lag, the lagging aspect I think matters a lot. The rents that you bring up are a prime example. Absolutely critical. In core CPI, uh, rents make up 40% of core CPI. So at first order importance, if you don't, don't get rents under control, you won't get anything under control. The data that we're seeing peaking and then starting to turn over, those are for new leases and especially sampled by REITs in sort of a bunch of the, the urban areas. But mostly the, the key point here is that it's for new leases. You still have so many people, at least half of the other rents in the, the economy are coming from renewals of leases. And historically, they don't, they don't move the same. The, the BLS, when they create the CPI, they wanna measure all rents, not just the new rents. And so it's, it's, it's clear that new rents are, are turning over. I don't think it's anywhere near as clear that we've got a complete turning over in rents across the economy. But I'm pretty sure we will. The new rent part of it, leading it, that's very helpful, I think, for the Fed. It should give them a reason to say, OK, maybe we can step down the pace and wait for the lags to go through. Uh, the slowing in the job market. Historically, job gains have been a key driver of what's going on with rents because, you know, young people get a job. They want one roommate instead of two roommates or maybe they don't want a roommate at all. Um, so I think I think your point is very well taken, both in terms of the lag and very specifically the focus on rents. Inside the Fed, they have a team of 300 plus PhD economists who are trying really hard to pick through these data. I think at least for that part of it, the actual mechanical part, that I think they'll, they'll have nailed. All right, so if we have a few more questions for you, Josh, I believe you have one. Hi, Seth, thanks for coming on the show. One of the, uh, one of the during, during the Q&A uh, section yesterday, uh, Powell was asked about the risk of tightening too much. And 
I'm paraphrasing, but he basically said he wasn't worried about it because if they go too far, they could always, you know, you quote, use our tools, meaning they could always start cutting. And I thought about that and I said to myself, man, how bad would things have to get if they are starting to cut this soon after putting through all of these hikes? Should that even be something that if you want to be bullish or constructive on the market, you would even be rooting for like a, a, a Q1 interest rate cut? How bad would the news have to be if we see them starting to do that or maybe not? What's, what's your take on that? Very, very well spotted on your part. I have to say that phrase that he came up with then when he talked about uh, it being easier to fix things by cutting rates surprised me a little bit. If we go back pre-COVID and sort of the 10 years before that, we heard them talking about redoing their whole framework for monetary policy because it was so hard for them to get the economy going, so hard for them to get up to the 2% inflation target, and they felt like they knew how to bring things down. So it's an amazing, slightly ironic change of fortunes. Um, but I think for the market perspective, uh, you raise a very important point. I think lots of equity investors are looking around and asking, when is the Fed going to pivot? Will that be a time for us to be risk on? And I think in these circumstances that you lay out, the answer is almost surely no, because things would have to be so bad. It would have to be the case that they're staring at the economy going into recession to cause and probably a pretty severe contraction for them to want to start to reverse rates so early. So that would be a situation where lower rates which normally equity markets greet uh, greet with 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 warmth. That would be a really bad sign, I think. All right, Carrie. One last question. Yeah. So, um, hi, Scott. So, my question relates to uh, the employment market. And Powell made a point yesterday of saying that uh, wages and labor were not the primary concerns that he had. There's inflation there, but wage rates. No, there were other things that were uh, important. And you just mentioned rents. But isn't it true, however, that when you have unemployment as low as it is in this country, that all those employed people compete for housing, whether it's housing that they buy or housing that they rent? And the service economy has a lot of pressure because people's wages have gone up and with almost no unemployment, you've got people spending, you know, extremely high levels on whatever services they like, whether it's restaurants, takeout food, um, going to theme parks, uh, you know, whatever. I mean, traveling, that's a big push on the inflation side. So until we get more signs that employment is coming down, and we've heard it from tech companies and very little of it, right, from service companies, although we just heard Lyft. I mean, that's a service. So I'm wondering how you feel about these interconnected pieces of labor and where there might be some breaking points that could move toward lowering inflation on that side. I think I think you have pulled together a lot of the really key components. Um, I think uh, perhaps Powell is being a little bit too precise in his words there um, that uh, wage inflation you know, you can look at the relationship between wage inflation, the data and consumer price inflation, the data, they're correlated with each other, but it's not always obvious how much of a push there is from one to the other. But jobs, jobs are key. Jobs are important in our forecast. So Ellen Zentner is uh, the U.S. economist here at Morgan Stanley. And in her forecast, we're going to have jobs coming down a lot. So 180 tomorrow is our forecast below that in December. Next year, getting down to as low as, you know, 40, 50,000 jobs per month. That is well below the number of jobs per month that this economy needs 
to sort of keep pace with the average population growth. So once you start getting below 80, 90,000 jobs per month, then you start to see the unemployment rate actually start to drift up uh, uh, just by the nature of the growing labor force. So I think your point is exactly right. There needs to be substantial slowing, substantial slowing to the tune of job creation coming down 50,000 or perhaps less per month. The challenge is, is Powell and the, the Fed, are they going to be able to thread the needle so that things come down close to zero, but don't end up being negative? We don't get an outright contraction. That's their goal. That's the soft landing. My personal view is that there's a path there. It's possible, but it will take really, really careful planning on their part and a fair bit of luck. All right, Seth, I'm listening to what you're saying really quick. We always want to make news here on halftime. So two really quick questions. Are you changing your base case for the U.S. economy to very narrowly avoid a recession? And also, do you know what Arubarus means? Still trying to figure (laughs) that one out. (laughs) Excellent. So I'm going to punt on the second question. And I will say we're sticking for now with our base case that the U.S. economy slows a lot, but just skirts going into recession. I have to say, though, very equity-focused conversation, very uh, equity-focused group here. And this is a key time to remind everyone that the economy is not the market. So when you think about the U.S. economy, consumer spending, 70% services, 30% goods for the S&P 500, it's kind of reversed, a little bit more focused on consumer goods than it is on services. Similarly, we export to the rest of the world, sure, 10, 11, 12% of GDP, but the S&P 500 is much more exposed to the rest of the world and Europe almost surely going into recession, China just muddling along. And so I think this is going to be a case where the U.S. economy as a whole can slow down and not crash, but the implications for the market and for earnings are going to be uh, a little bit more to the downside. Well, Seth, I don't know if you're easing concerns of investors. While you were talking, the Dow ticked very slightly into the green out of negative territory, down 200 points at one point. Seth Carpenter, Morgan Stanley, chief global economist. Great to have you here. Thank you again. All right, up next here on Halftime, tech in trouble. Amazon and Alphabet hitting new lows. Cyber and software names getting whacked and the semis under pressure. We'll debate what's next for this trade and on the back of that Fed decision. Halftime, back in two minutes. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. 
All right, welcome back to Halftime Report. Tech getting wrecked once again. Alphabet, Amazon, Microsoft, and Meta all hitting new 52-week lows. Carrie, I'm going to come over to you. Are you changing your opinion about mega cap tech, especially in your portfolio? We're seeing the performance. The name I left out here, obviously, is Apple. Right. You know, Apple is holding up very well, and it's been an amazing performer relative to the other big techs, down about half the amount that are 50% less, anyway, than, than technology as a whole. Uh, the others, um, you know, they've got self-inflicted wounds. Meta might be selling at 10 times earnings, but the amount that they're spending has really scared investors. Um, the same is true in, in ways at Google and at Amazon. Heavy spending and pressure on advertising has, has hurt those stocks. It's unclear about where the consumer is going over the next um, Christmas season and into the beginning of the, the year. So we've stuck with these stocks. Uh, our overweight is limited on a couple of them. We are underweight on others. So it's a, it's a portfolio move. You know, we have a diversified portfolio. We have names that are very defensive in different sectors. Um, these have not been good stocks. They've not been the place to be, as Josh pointed out. I mean, the market has moved uh, well without them. And we would hope that at a value that investors find attractive, whether it's 16 times earnings for for Alphabet or 10 or 11 without the cash for Meta, there are bids and people start to buy them again. But yes, there's been a problem with rotation and margin compression. So let's see how the next couple of months play out. Josh, coming over to you about cloud and cyber. Uh, we're looking at Fortinet today down double digits after a really strong report. Billings guidance a little light. What's your view? I know you own CrowdStrike. I just think 2023 is not going to be a banner year for enterprise spending. And that's really what drives these stocks, not just in the United States, but all over the world. I think there is a certain element, though, within the SaaS group um, where you don't want to run from. And within that, cybersecurity, from my perspective, seems more defensive, no pun intended, than the rest of that group. You really can't cut your cybersecurity budget meaningfully. And most Fortune 500 companies, most foreign governments, most organizations will be spending more, not less, with every passing year, barring like a global financial crisis. So um, these are not cheap stocks. I'm in CrowdStrike. It's my favorite of the group. None of them are what you would say classically cheap, but they never have been. And I think they have the most favorable outlook, almost regardless of what happens with GDP growth or whatever. So I would probably be biased toward the cyber names and and not just broadly looking to add, you know, software exposure at this point. Yeah, the BUG cybersecurity ETF having its worst week since the start of the pandemic. Pretty interesting here. That's definitely mission critical. Jim, I'm going to come over to you. Um, talking about semis right now, uh, the SMH actually pretty close to flat, fractionally down right now. But in general, we've seen a lot of mixed reports from chip makers. Qualcomm included those shares down right now. What is your take on what we're seeing with the semis? Yeah, I, I think, well, why don't we focus in on Qualcomm as emblematic of the sector, right? Because what we have here is a company that finds you know, last quarter was good. The guidance is not good going forward. And the question hangs in the air. Are they accurate? Are they correct when they say this is just a two quarter inventory correction? Or are they wrong? Is this something that's going to go on longer and longer? And again, this is emblematic of the of the sector at large. Um, frankly, if I look at Qualcomm, what I see is, OK, there was overordering. We know that we've seen that at Texas Instruments, Micron, a lot of companies. We understand why it happened. Customers didn't think they were going to get the chips, but now they're getting chips. And you have to ask yourself, do you think smartphones, even as we go through a slow 
slowdown, whether it's China or here in the U.S., as we go through a slowdown in the in the uptake rate for new iPhones. Do we think that's going to last for very long? Because I don't. Um, do we think that automotive is not going to grow? I mean, we've got such pent up demand for autos. Uh, frankly, they just can't produce these uh, these cars fast enough to satisfy demand. So. I don't see a lasting issue here. And if I look at Qualcomm, again, emblematic of the industry. Uh, next year, quite highly likely that they're right. The second half of the year is going to look a lot better than the first year. They could be on a run rate in the second half of next year that's earning $12 a share plus. Do you want to not own or sell those shares today at 104 that are going to be at a run rate of $12 a share? I don't think so. Not with a company that's as good as this, with as good as a balance sheet as it has. So, but everybody, look, they can make their own choices. Obviously, I'm more optimistic about the future than a lot of people. Hey, Jim. If you don't believe it. Yeah, Josh, go ahead, buddy. One of the things that Qualcomm was talking about uh, was deteriorating handset demand, and that's before there was any real sign of a recession in our economy. So what does that look like if the unemployment rate starts to tick up and all of these uh, unfilled jobs start to kind of vanish? And even, you know, you even see like, uh, you know, the start of like bigger corporate layoffs and you, you see the recession in Europe, obvious. And, uh, you know, like, like that's a tough environment to expect that deterioration in handset demand to slow down. It probably gets worse before it gets better. So Qualcomm, for me, looks dirt cheap, but the news flow is going to suck. Um, Josh, great, great timing on that question. It's actually right where I wanted to go. So uh, good job, as always. Um, look, it's, a, it's an absolutely valid point. And I think just to really simplify this, the question for all of us is how long does the slowdown go on, right? We know there's a slowdown going on right now. It's actually not news, right, because upgrade cycles have been elongating for most of this year. China's been in the dumps. We know that. Um, the question is, how elongated can those upgrade cycles go? And Qualcomm, again, last night is saying this is a six-month problem. It's a two-quarter problem. Maybe it is longer, Josh. I mean, I, we all have to entertain that we don't know what tomorrow's going to be, let alone six months from now. But again, just going back to where I started, I think six months is a long time to elongate a cycle that's already been elongated. I mean, we've heard from Apple and others that the upgrades just aren't coming through as quickly as, as everybody expected. So maybe... Maybe that news gets worse than is already priced into the stock. But I, I do believe at this price, there's a heck of a lot of bad news priced into the stock. My opinion only, Josh. All right, Farmer Jim, very optimistic. And not even mentioning the slowdown and growth from the hyperscalers that are also weighing on these chips. I like your optimistic spirit, Jim. All right, coming up on Halftime, Energy, the top performer today with one big oil stock hitting all-time highs. The committee debates whether the run can continue and the top plays in the group. That's coming up on Halftime. Stay with us. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to Halftime. I'm Bertha Coons with your CNBC News update at this hour. North Korea fired three more missiles, including an ICBM, late last night after launching nearly two dozen rockets over the past few days. The tests prompted the Japanese government to activate its warning systems. North Korea says the demonstration is in response to large-scale joint military exercises between the U.S. and South Korea. 
The suspect who violently assaulted Paul Pelosi with a hammer last week was in the U.S. illegally. According to immigration officials, David DePop, a Canadian citizen, has an expired temporary visitor visa and has been in the country since 2008, according to records. DePop could be deported, deported rather, back to Canada by ICE, but would complete a sentence here first if he is convicted of any crimes. And NBA Commissioner Adam Silver says he will be meeting with Kyrie Irving to discuss Irving's decision to post a link to a film containing conspiracy and anti-Semitic material. Irving defended tweeting a link to the film last week, but has since pledged to work with the Anti-Defamation League and donate half a million dollars to combat hate speech. Frank? All right, our Bertha Coombs. Thank you for those headlines, Bertha. All right, turning our attention back to the markets, the energy sector outperforming today. It's now up 63% this year. Josh, you own the IEO, the U.S. oil and gas ETF. Yeah, I'm gonna st I think I'm sticking with this through at least the end of the year. This is just one of those areas of the market where it's very under-owned. Um, it doesn't carry a very big index weighting, but a lot of the growth, a lot of the earnings growth that we're expecting in the market it will will come from these companies. Like these are the companies that have the best, I think, secular growth story right now. Uh, cyclical growth story right now. So these stocks were up. Uh, the energy sector, S&P energy sector, was up 25% in October alone. This has just been like a runaway tra uh, train. And I think one of the things that you start to see toward the end of the year, a lot of active managers who missed the rally or were underweight and, you know, feel as though, I don't, I don't want to say window dress, but feel as though they really need to get with what's going on. Uh, you will see them adding to these names and probably not selling them. Um, so barring any kind of wild move to the downside in the price of crude oil, which I suppose is possible, I don't see why these stocks would lose their bid. Um, you look at, you know, some of the earlier earnings reports coming out in the group. I'm in Chenier Energy, uh, LNG. Um, they just reported they, they did eight point something billion dollars in revenue versus three point something billion in the same quarter a year prior. You're not getting that in tech. You're not getting like you're not getting that kind of growth anywhere. So I'm, I'm sticking with the names and uh, I think they'll continue to work. Yeah, something certainly to watch there, Josh. Uh, by the way, ConocoPhillips hitting a 52 week high energy, the best performing sector today. All right, turning our attention to streaming. It's been a pretty rough year for those streaming stocks. We'll debate the new era of ad-supported plans that are starting to roll out. And is now the time to be adding some of those names to your portfolio? Halftime. We'll be right back. Much more coming up. All right, welcome back to Half. Streaming stocks getting slammed this year. And today, Netflix rolls out its $7 per month ad-supported membership tier. This comes a month before rival Disney Plus starts its first ad-backed ad plan for $8 per month. Josh, you own Netflix. This thing's being called basic with ads. Basic's never really a good term these days. What do you think about what's happening? Yeah, I don't like being referred to as basic. <laughs> you know, I think the potential for this is being underestimated by uh, Wall Street. And I think one of the reasons why is there's a little bit of like a uh, disconnect between people who work in the asset management business and the rest of the, uh, the, rest of the, the consuming public. Um, from the perspective of someone who is wealthy, time is money. They'll gladly trade money to have more time, and they don't want to sit through commercials, and they're happy to pay you know, the, the full freight to continue their Netflix subscription without them. But that's not everyone. And in fact, in this day and age, that's not even most people. I think most people are happy to make that trade, and as a result, 
I think there's going to be a lot of uptake for both Disney and Netflix's ad-supported version. Um, we know from Peacock that people are happy to pay the lower amount and live with the commercials. So we know it can work. So I, I think that there's going to be a decent reception. Netflix management was very wise to sandbag this, this rollout and not make grand presumptions or lay out impossible-to-hit targets. They said, we're going to start very slow and we'll see what happens. The one headwind is that we're going into or we're in the midst of uh, an, an advertising slowdown just generally for all platforms. But if we're starting from zero in the case of Netflix, that's okay. It's not like they have a big market share facing decline. They could eat into the market share of other players if they, if they execute. So yeah. uh, I think this will go well. All right, Jim, really quick, uh, you own Paramount. You also have exposure to Disney. What's your take on what we're seeing from Netflix? Yeah, well, my take, I've got to make the comment at the industry level. The whole industry, we have those year-to-date numbers up right now as I'm speaking. The whole industry just stinks this year. And there's a reason for that. This is not a year in which the market is going to reward any investments that are being made for the future. It wants results right now. This industry is, for the most part, investing for the future. I know Netflix is the leader right now. However, having said that, this is a great time to sift through the rubble and see who the winners and the losers are going to be. I'm in Paramount and Disney. I've defended both names a lot. I think just on Paramount, since that's the more uh, you know provocative of the names, okay. you just have to admit it's put 11 million new subscribers in the first nine months of the year. I'm not taking a shot at Netflix. I'm just saying that it's only added 1 million. One company's growing. You got to be with the grower. All right. Uh, right now, Paramount Global, again, hitting a 52-week low, down about 5% right now. Important to note, uh, Amazon Prime is football, too. That was supposed to be the advantage for companies like Paramount. So does Paramount. Yep. Yeah. All right, keep yeah, going. But Eagles on Amazon Prime tonight. I'm a big Eagles fan. All right, coming up next, Mike Santoli joins us with his midday word, halftime, right back after this. All right, welcome back to Halftime Report. As you can see, markets off their lows of the session. And right now we're joined by senior markets commentator Mike Santoli. He joins us now from the NYSE with his midday word. Mike, great to see you as always. Yeah, Frank, thanks. So the market is uh, putting in a little, put up a little fight here in the morning. And I think you could explain it in a few ways. One is um, it was not particularly overstretched to the upside, even if it had this 10 or 11 percent rally going into the Fed relative to how it felt back in the mid-summer uh, rally. So it wasn't as much uh, to give back, at least on the instinct. Also, as whipsawed as the markets were yesterday by that sense that maybe the Fed was, was giving a little bit of a daylight to the dovish side and then uh, Powell taking it back, Bonds have not had to reprice too radically relative to where they were before, right? We were already handicapping a 5%-ish Fed funds rate ultimately into next year. You had to nudge that up, but not terribly. And we're within the range, barely, but within the range when it comes to things like the 10-year yield still hovering a little below its highs, U.S. dollar index up, but also not at the highs from late September. So it's a bit tenuous, but the market seems like, aside from a downside retest in the NASDAQ 100, which remains the leadership in terms of weakness, uh, the rest of the market is saying, OK, Powell says no soft landing. What kind of stocks might work if the landing is a, if, if, in fact, the economy is not kind of succumbing as quickly as we think. So therefore, the industrial is doing OK uh, and things like that in the cyclical area. Mike, I thought your midday word might have been premature today following Jay Powell. But thank you for that, as always. Great to All see right. you. <laughs> you got it. All right. Some big earnings after the bell. We're going to get you ready. That's coming up next on Halftime. All right, welcome back to half. A number of key earnings after the bell, including PayPal. Carrie, you own it. Yeah, so PayPal will be an interesting case study here, and we hope it's on the good side. 
you know, consumer spending has remained reasonably good. E-commerce has come back from some of the lows following the pandemic. They have an activist investor. There's more cost control. They've talked about how they're getting expenses in line. And so we expect to see a reasonably good number. What We don't have to have anything heroic. Just show some cost control on that e-commerce is growing. Market share is, is holding in there or, or growing. And uh, we should see a decent number from them. Josh, also Live Nation reports after the bell. You own it. Yeah, so they're going to put up explosive numbers year over year. But you got to remember, they're lapping COVID stuff. So uh, the street is looking for $1.05 in earnings, which would be up 452% year over year. Uh, revenue, $5.1 billion, which would be up about 90% over last year. Don't expect that to continue going forward. But I think the demand side has been great, and uh, I'm looking forward to hearing what they have to say. All right, definitely some pandemic comps there. All right, final trades next on Halftime. Stay with us. All right, welcome back to Halftime. Before we get to final trades, we want to highlight a great cause by Josh Brown and his daughter ahead of Thanksgiving. Josh, tell us all about it. So uh, last year, we put together 150 Thanksgiving meals. We adopted 150 local families on Long Island so that they, everyone could have a holiday meal. Long Island Cares is my partner on this project. They estimate there are 225,000 food insecure people on Long Island, 79,000 of whom are children. And that really pisses me off. And so instead of sitting around getting angry, I said, what can we do about it? This year, I turned the program over to my 16-year-old daughter, who is a junior in high school. She's running the whole show. She's got kids coming from all over Long Island to donate meals. And we're going to try to outdo what we did last year, in addition to raising tens of thousands of dollars. And Long Island Cares is super efficient. Every $2 they take in feeds one person for the day. It's remarkable how much they get done. So I'm really proud to be affiliated with the organization, and I'm mostly proud of my daughter, Tara, for running the operation this year, and I think we're going to make a really big difference. I want to say thank you to everybody who visited my blog page and took part in this or is planning to come out with a donated meal. It really means a lot to people, especially given what inflation is doing to household budgets this year. Thank you, guys. All right, Josh, really an outstanding cause, and thank you to you and your daughter, Tara. I think everybody in Long Island appreciates it. All right, we also want to highlight Kerry's new op-ed column on CNBC.com. The headline is, Stocks are being punished more harshly for missing Wall Street's expectations, what the numbers show. Go to CNBC.com pro to read that op-ed from Kerry. All right, time now for final trades. Kick it off with you, Jim. You're here. What do you got? Uh, real quick, Boeing. Um, things are turning around quicker than expected. Stock's where it was about six months ago, but things are a lot better than they were then. All right, Steve Weiss is somewhere here in that. All right, Carrie, over to you. Uh, Waste Connection, you're in the trash business, put up a good quarter, sales up 18% on the back of an 8% plus price increase. Free cash flow went way up, and we think the stock is more upside. Josh? I'm watching Redfin and Zillow, Zillow in particular. Both of these stocks have lost more than 80% of their market cap. And I'm starting to get very interested in seeing these start to bottom here. So I'm watching them. I haven't bought either yet. Just wanted to throw it on people's radars. I think it's okay. way overdone. Got to leave it there. Josh, thank you. Everybody, thank you. That does it for halftime. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. 
You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range, and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today.